0: Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. I don't know if you can relate to that video, Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes it's me with the Nell. sometimes it's with my wife, but we've had that conversation a million times. And um, I'm grateful for John Headley, who is uh, a little short film um, maker who created that because in some ways it illustrates uh, the sheer ridiculous level of complications that is relationships, right? When we are growing up, we had this picture of like, oh, relationships, the... In a fairy tale wedding, it's going to be perfect, right? I mean, all the fairy tale stories that movies make, they always show the struggle before the relationship happens. And the assumption is after that, there's no more struggle. We never see a real romantic comedy where most of the comedy happens after you say yes, because it's very obvious after that moment how complicated relationships are. In fact, we are headed into a minefield about five days from now. We call that Valentine's Day. Uh, for some of you, you just realized that, and the answer is probably not. You're not going to be able to get a reservation. Um, you're probably going to get ugly flowers. Your best bet is to, to do kind of the flip, the thing, go to Taco Bell and say, Girl, I just wanted to eat a cheap meal so I could give you some really nice things. Surprise, right? I mean, uh, this is one of those days that for some of us, we loathe it. We kind of skip the 14th and go from 13 to 15. Um, it's not a day that some of us look forward to. Um, there is something, just as a public service announcement, if you're in the middle of uh, kind of going through a breakup and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do this Valentine's Day, San Antonio Zoo actually has an answer just for you. Um, if you're willing to pay 5 or $25, they will actually name a cockroach or a rat after your ex. Okay? And on Valentine's Day, you can tune into their Facebook page and watch your ex-cockroach or ex-rat be fed to an animal eating it on live Facebook stream. So if you've ever just wanted to see your ex consumed by a snake or a meerkat, I'm telling you five days from now, it is the time to seize that opportunity. They're taking it through the 13th, so you've got time to really kind of think through that list and tune in because you can watch him get eaten, and that's exciting. And so when I saw this, I'm like, how jacked up are relationships? I mean, I read this one lady who was like, oh, I can't wait. He, I, he's a rat, so it just works, right? Like, I can't wait to watch him get eaten by a snake. And I'm sure like no one, I I don't know, maybe it's, you know, maybe, but I don't know if anyone sits across the table from someone on the first date and while looking at the person in the back of their mind says, man, I can't wait from six months from now when I hate this person so much that I'm going to be willing to part with my own money just to have a roach named after him so I can watch a meerkat eat it. Like, I don't think any of us step into relationships hoping one day a little doppelganger insect gets eaten. Because you hate that person so much. And yet, that's what happens in relationships sometimes. Is we start off, and things are good, and things look great, until they're not. And last week, Jason kicked off this series by kind of throwing out two myths that, that derail us at the beginning of relationships. And that we think that there's, if I just find that right person, they're going to fix me. And there's songs, right, that says, you know, you complete me. Girl, you're my everything. And then you get into relationships and you realize that they do not complete you. They annoy you. And if, you're, if they are your everything, then you really were dreaming kind of small because you need a lot of other things on top of that. One of the things I say to my wife, and this is the Taco Bell kind of level of romanticism here, but I, I remind her she's not my everything. And she does not complete me because it's not fair to her for me to put the weight and expectation of my holes and my hangups and my hurts, thinking that one person is going to free me from all those things. Because if you are walking through and processing through all of those hurts and hangups and holes before you get married, guess what? You wake up married with them still there. It doesn't go away. And it's not fair. And so I said, babe, you don't complete me, you compliment me. Like, we're, we work together. Like, we're like peanut butter and jelly, right? Like, really good seasoning on a steak. Like, it just works together. But you don't you don't complete me. You compliment me. And then the other one was um, that if, if we were kind of not the right person, but we become the right person, then the second that he kind of, touched on briefly kind of digs into a little bit deeper of the fact that a promise is all that you need to do it doesn't a promise will fix everything but in reality in relationships it takes preparation what i want to do today is look at the single biggest most essential element of any relationship this is across the board romantic non-romantic this is the most essential piece I'm convinced of any relationship. This is something that as a pastor, as I've sat across from couples who are in the midst of their relationship falling apart, this is the one thing that I look for because if I can see that and it's strong, then they can make it through. And if I don't see it, then it gets really scary really fast. And it's this issue of communication. It's the, the one thing that's at the core of every great relationship, and it's the one thing missing at the core of every bad relationship. And instead of just telling you that, because I just did, I want to kind of walk you through how. I want to give you some handles to say, okay, I know communication matters. Got it. Thank you. What do I do with that? And over the next 20 minutes, I want us to unpack one of the most famous proverbs ever written on words. And I don't mean sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me because that is the worst proverb that has ever been uttered by anyone around words, because it is an absolute lie, right? I have found in my own personal journey that sticks and stones leave bruises, but words cause you to have lifelong counseling. Some of you are still limping through This season of life, because of words that were spoken over you in your first season of life, some of you are still trying to please a mother and a father, even though you're a mother or a father or a grandfather, because of words that were or were not spoken over you growing up. And so what I want to actually do is take us to a proverb written by one of the wisest men who ever lived that actually explains why that proverb about sticks and stones is so horrible. It's found in Proverbs 18, um, which is a chapter filled with a lot of different pithy sayings around our speech and our words. In fact, if you're a part of Life Group here at Encounter Church, which started two weeks ago, so you can still sign up if not, um, we actually are going to look at three more Proverbs from this same chapter because there's so much in chapter 18 that points us and guides us in how to use our words and how to speak in a way that, that fulfills and brings what we're about to read in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. So if you have the message notes um, in the app, uh, you can go ahead and pull it up. It's already preloaded. If you want to download our app, it's free. It's encounterchurch.com forward slash app. Um, And if not, while you're downloading it, it'll also be on our screen. But here's Proverbs 18, 20 and 21. And this is, the, I I think, the, the most essential proverb that Solomon writes. He writes over 100 different proverbs on words alone. And here it is. He says, From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. And with the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who live it will eat its fruit. He says that, he, he begins, he, his build-up is the life and death, but he kind of sets the stage with this imagery at the first part when he says, From the fruit of the mouth, a person's stomach is filled. So he's actually using this clever little wordplay. He says that, From the fruit of the mouth. So what goes in fills this, our stomach. And then, with the same kind of wordplay, he says, but what comes out of our mouth will fill our lives. So what we eat will fill our stomach, but even more importantly, what we say will surround us. He's trying to take something that would be an important essential to life, like eating, and he's trying to show how words even elevate. He's like, no... The the most important thing your mouth will do is not eat, it's speak. Because what you eat will only fill your stomach, but what you speak will fill your entire life and the relationships around it. And then he goes on and he says, the tongue has the power of life and death. So he's he's building off of this imagery because the word satisfied is really the word fulfilled. So there's this kind of double play, we can miss it in the English that we're reading. And notice that he says life and death. He doesn't say life or death. He's, he's calling to attention to his children, because that's the original audience of this book, as he writes this book for, as a parenting preparation manual. He says, um, your tongue is a tool. And like any good tool, it's neutral. Like a hammer. A hammer can build a house. Or you flip it around and you can tear down a wall. You can make or you can break with a tool. And our words have that kind of power, has that kind of ability. Most of us don't necessarily think about our words with that level of dramatic flair. But Solomon, at the, the very beginning of his children's life, wants them to realize that the most powerful thing they will do is they will speak and it will fill, the fruit of that will fill their entire life. And I think there's, there's a helpfulness with this life and death that feels almost dramatic because most of us would say that the most powerful thing we do is maybe get in our car and we drive or we make decisions at work. And we can miss the thing that we do thousands of times a day is actually the most important, powerful thing that you and I do. We speak our words, little Tiny, crazy undulations of air moving across vocal cords and being shaped by our tongue and our teeth somehow have the power to transform and to bring life or death. So a couple weeks ago, um, I got this alert that from the National Weather Service, and we were actually preparing to head for Florida, and so I was naturally paying attention to Florida. And it said, warning, possible falling iguanas possible tonight. And I saw this alert, and my initial thought was this has to be like some teenage prank. Some hacker got a hold of the National Weather Services. Like, you know, I know what to do with snow when it falls, but I don't know what to do with iguanas when they fall. And so I, I, have, a, I have a few friends that live in Florida, and I reached out to one and said, Yo, man, you, what is up? Why aren't iguanas falling in Florida? And he's he kind of chuckling. He said, Oh, you know, that's it, it's true. It actually happens here. That's not a prank. Um... And so it turns out iguanas, because they're cold-blooded, Florida recently has had a little bit of a cold snap. I don't know if you saw that this week. Antarctica was warmer than Orlando. Like, no joke. Antarctica, 65 degrees. That's a whole different conversation, right? But it was warmer than Orlando. Orlando. And so Florida is in the midst of this kind of cold snap, and with iguanas being cold-blooded, when they get to around 40 degrees around their body, they actually kind of go catatonic. They, it's sort of hibernation-ish, and because iguanas' mating rituals require them to perch up in the trees to holler at the ladies as they walk by, um, when they're up there hollering and then it gets 40, they just freeze up and then they fall. And so no joke, people are just walking and iguanas are falling out the trees. And, and and so my friend texts me back. and He says, dude, that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is there was this guy who went around who saw all these iguanas on the ground and was like, oh, somebody should do something. So he starts picking up iguanas that are all on the street, and he puts them in his car, and he's driving around. And because it's a cold day, he has his heat on. And so as he's driving down the road, picking up iguanas, the heat slowly warming their little bodies back up. And as he's driving, he starts to feel things crawl on him. And his body is being covered with iguanas all creeping behind him. And he he almost wrecks his car in the middle of it. And as I was kind of like laughing and chuckling and I was thinking about this message, it hit me. I was like, oh my goodness, this is the perfect illustration for what Solomon is saying. Communication is cold-blooded. Right? It's it's cold-blooded. Like our words can either freeze out a relationship. Or they can bring warmth and life to a relationship. It's like, it's straight cold-blooded. And you knew that. Your ex, you used to say, you're cold-blooded. And now you have proof. They're a lizard. All along, you knew it, but now I've confirmed it with science. Don't you feel better today? That was free for you. You don't even have to pay $5 to San Antonio Zoo. You you got it figured out. And so what Solomon's trying to do for us here, though, when he's he's bringing out this life and death, when this realization that our words are neutral, they're tools, it's communication, it's communications cold-blooded, we have in our hands this powerful potential. And it's because most of us are never taught how to use our words that we fall into the traps that we fall into. And I, I think that When we talk about our words, what Solomon is pointing to with the use of life and death and fruit and this imagery of the mouth and stomach and this harvest around you, is that he's like, words aren't just about the intention. I don't know if you've ever been there where you're like, I didn't mean it like that, or I didn't intend for it to offend you. Like, are you going to wear that? Like, you didn't mean you look hideous. Why are you going to go in public? This is dangerous. But it might come out that way. I don't know if you've ever been on the other side of saying something that then it lands and you're like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. See, intention is not enough. What Solomon points to is not just intention. He points to impact. He says, what's the fruit? What does it do? And I came across this um, really helpful framework about three years ago. Um, You see, I have a little girl who I love to death. Um, but she is the exact opposite of me and my wife. Um, every day she reminds me of that. I'm an introvert. No one's ever going to say, man, that Chris Calsy, he's just a bubbly social butterfly. right? Like That's never going to be said about me. And my wife is delightful and charming and so much better. Like If it wasn't for her, I'd be living under a bridge sucking on a bouillon cube. I know that. <laughs> I'm grateful for her. But like she's not necessarily like this so- social butterfly either. And yet we have a daughter who is like 100% emotion, 100% words, like we're talking. And she's like, daddy, I got to use the bathroom. Will you come with me so we can keep talking? I'm like, no, baby girl. How about you go to the bathroom and then we'll continue our conversation, right? Like, I'm not okay with that. Unsanitary. And so like oftentimes I'm like, I don't know how to deal with this girl. And so I I read a lot because I'm trying to wrap my head around parenting a girl who's going to become a teenager that terrifies me. And since last time I checked, it is still not legal to build a tower and stick her in it for the next 10 years, I've got to figure out how to manage this thing. And so I came across this framework that helped me have some handles around thinking about communication that, that brings to life what Solomon is saying about impact and intention. And it's a framework that combines both the... Like intent, like was it intentional or was it unintentional? And it, it brings the impact piece into the equation. And instead of using life or death, because I realize that can be a little heavy and can sound dramatic and can cause a little bit of confusion, I'm going to give you a synonym for what, what Solomon is saying, constructive and destructive. And so there's this framework where when you kind of put them together with a two-by-two two matrix, you create this spectrum. Where you have words that are intentionally destructive, you have words that are unintentionally destructive, you have words that are unintentionally constructive, and you have words that are intentionally constructive. And this is a helpful framework because all of us, when we talk, we are falling into one of those four categories when we speak. And this is a framework that's continued to serve me. Um, It's serving me right now with this 8-year-old little girl that I'm still trying to figure out how to lead well because God made her a way, and I want to partner with him and how he's made her and not force her to try to pretend to be me, but to really help her flourish in who he's made her to be. And so this framework has been useful, and I hope it'll be useful for you. So to make it a little bit, put a little bit more handles, um, I want to give you an example. One, actually, three years ago, uh, I I spent some time unpacking for you. So it's, let's say your significant other comes home, and they say, I got a promotion. I want to show you what the response would look like in each one of those four quadrants. The first one, intentionally destructive, would go like this. That sounds like a lot of responsibility to take on. Are you going to spend even fewer nights at home now? I don't know about you, but I can already feel the, the cold-blooded chill creep in in that conversation. And there's pretty much no conversation that happens after that moment, except maybe five minutes from that moment, someone's mother-in-law is being referenced, and it just goes downhill from there, Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much probably what happens after that statement. And th- that's a really, like, intentionally destructive. You're, you're intentionally frustrated, and you're going after, and you're, you're doing the exact opposite of responding to what they're talking about. You're trying to tear them down. The unintentionally destructive, though, sounds a little bit different. That one goes, what's for dinner? It's like, I've got a promotion. What's for dinner? Maybe it's your kid comes home. I, I passed the test. I worked so hard. You need to get ready. We have practice. Your coworker. Hey, I got I got it. I did it. I sold it. I delivered. I closed on the cell. It's awesome. Where's that report I asked you for yesterday? Now, we didn't mean it to be mean. But what happens in the way it lands unintentionally? Is this destructive? And it tears down. And it looks over. And it hurts. And this is one where typically one of the others, like, what? What did I say? What happened? You were excited. Now you're not excited. I was excited because I'm hungry. You know, like what, what just? And then that chill comes in. And for the rest of the night, five or six hours, there's just the chill in the relationship. If you don't talk about it, you wake up the next morning, there's a distance that's still there that lingered from overnight. Because you don't sleep off distance. You don't sleep off repair. It may work with the body, but it doesn't work with relationships. And a lot of times, where this one happens, when you say, What's for dinner, is that the nonverbals are really important. And that Typically, this is, you know, if you, let me get on the soapbox for a second. This is why telephones are one of the worst things that have happened to humanity. When our telephones got unclipped from the wall and put in our hands. I, I heard a, a researcher recently say that when, when phones had cords, we didn't. But when our phones lost the cords, we gained one. And again, I have a smartphone. I love it. But I realize that a lot of times the smartphone helps to serve me saying dumb things. Because I'm not listening. I'm not engaged 100%. And, and so I'm just soaking in what's being said. And, but I'm really more focused on what's in my hand than what's in their head and heart. And so as a general rule of thumb, I try to get rid of my cell phone when I walk into the house. Just kind of put it down. There's been research that's, that's proven that even when a cell phone is on a table in a conversation, um, the person's brain, they've done functional MRIs uh, that kind of can track real-time living um, kind of activity in the brain, that when a phone is present in the room with you, you can't be 100% focused on the person. Because a little bit of your brain is monitoring it, like a, a mom or a father would monitor a baby who's in the crib. You're, you're just slightly tuned into it to make sure there's not a ping or a notification because, you know, that, that candy crush alert you just got, you know, it could could change your life. So you got to be on, right? And, and so this is one of those dangerous moments where these nonverbals start to creep in. The next one, the unintentionally constructive. I got a promotion! And it's, oh, that's good news. You deserve it. That's it. Good news, you deserve it. That may not sound like that. Maybe it's another thing. Like they come in and I failed my test, and or you know I got cut from the team, or you know this person said this to me today, and you say, well, it could have been worse, or you'll be fine, or at least it wasn't. You know, fill in the blank. You know, we just we have other ways we do this. Don't worry, oh, I'm sure to work out. It's not that big of a deal. I, I mean, I, I catch myself as a parent doing this all the time. Ella brings in something, and it's, it seems like—I mean, if I was paying attention, it's a really big deal to her. And I'm like, "When I was your age, that wasn't a problem. That wasn't a big deal, you know? Like, I never—I never got told I walked uphill both ways with snow, but I'm pretty sure I say some version of that when when she comes in with a problem. And again, it's—I'm not validating it. I'm not—I'm not listening to her heart. I'm not hearing what she's saying. And so it's unintentional. I'm not being I'm, I'm not being intentional about my response. I'm just on autopilot. I got a lot of things bouncing around my head. I've got a lot of things going on, and I just kind of respond and I move on because I'm I'm emotionally tapped and I don't have a lot of emotional energy to spend on her. And so I just move on. And if there's any one of these three so far where I. I get most afraid. It's actually this one, because this one feels like everything's okay. With the other two, you can kind of pick up on something, and it's and it's and you can label it. You can say to the other person, or the other person can say to you, "I just felt like you weren't, you know, like it seemed mean how you responded, or you dismissed me." But this one, it's really hard to be the other person and say, "Well, you." You didn't really, like, hear me because the person can say, of course I heard you. I said that was good news. If you've ever found yourself arguing about something you should not be arguing about, it's because you probably started here. You didn't validate. You didn't didn't hear. You didn't pick up on the nonverbals. And what typically marks this one is that nonverbally you're not present. Your words give lip service. But you're moving on even when the other person isn't. And this is oftentimes where I watch couples get into a little bit of a trap. And it's not even a trap. It's more like a rut. And then it's autopilot. I don't know if you've ever had one of those weeks where you say, what did I talk? Did we talk this week? And it was more like logistics. It was coordination. It was, you know, this time, this place. How was your day? Good. Oh, great. Oh, good. You know, fine. Fine you just get into this rut of this autopilot and people can live in that that quadrant for years and decades. I don't know if you've ever gone back home or you know or visited like one of those older couples now that you're an adult and you are sit there and you listen to them talk and you're like what do these people talk about? There's like the most boring conversation ever. It's because they're living in this place. They're not engaging heart to heart. It's just Out of my head. All right, moving on. Next thing. And for you to step from this place into that next level of intentionally constructive, it requires you to to recognize the validation of hearing them, engaging with them emotionally, and being able to respond. So here's what intentionally constructive looks like. It says, that's great. I'm so proud of you. I know how important that was. I know how hard you worked. Give me the details. How did it go down? What they say? And then let's go out and celebrate. Because your promotion probably got you paid more and you're paying. Yeah. Right? Like you can afford it now. So you're buying my meal. Like that's what intentionally constructive looks like. It's it's not just the impact is life giving, it's the intention is life-giving too. And there's validation. You you hear both what's happening in their head and in their heart. And it's ironically that really funny video that is ridiculous. At the end of the conversation, when she's like, it's not about the nail. There's a level of truth in that video. Because when does she finally respond to him and say thank you? It's when he goes, that must be tough. Because sometimes conversationally in relationships, we're not looking for the other person to solve our problem. We just want them to see that we're in the midst of the problem. We just want to know that someone's with us in the middle of it. We're not looking for solutions yet. We just want to know, do I have someone beside me? Because one of the most important things that we all long for is to have someone we can belong to. That's not always romantic, right? We grow up into that. It's called family. And And that sense when she goes, thank you, is because he finally validated what she was going through. He was like, I see you. I hear you. I know what's, I'm I'm here with you. And she's like, oh, thank you. Now, I don't want you to think that this is always like warm, fuzzy stuff. Constructive doesn't always mean happy. Some of, the most profa- some of the most profound, powerful, moving conversations I've had in my life were not warm, fuzzy conversations. My wife does not remember this, but there was a point when we were dating when we were starting to get serious, and she was kind of considering, you know, that next phase for us, and I was already there. And, um, but I was really immature because I had no clue what relationships looked like. I didn't really have a picture of this growing up. And so I'm kind of blindly wandering through this thing, And I remember one night outside of a coffee shop, she looked straight at me and she said, look, I like you. And I think this thing between you and I has potential. But if you don't grow up, this ain't going to keep growing. Do you understand? I want to marry a man. And right now, I just see a boy. Now, after I cried... (laughs) And once I got out of that fetal position, it made a difference. One of the most defining marks and moments for me becoming a man was this incredible, amazing, godly woman looking at me and saying, I I can't marry a boy. I need a man. And me going back and looking in the mirror and saying, all right, you're going to be a man today. From day, this day on, you are a man. And so the next time, I'm like, my name is Chris Causey, and I am your man. <laughs> I'm growing up, girl. We're going places. Because if that's the final roadblock, I can take care of that. Right, and so I don't want you it's not always warm fussies. Sometimes it's, it's heavy and it's hard. But the goal, the impact, remember we measure by the impact, not just the intention. The impact was it brought life. It was constructive, and it was good. John Gottman, who's a famous uh, relationship researcher, um, kind of documented this. They transformed the University of Washington, his lab, into um, a bed and breakfast, and they invited 130 couples to come and spend time in it. And the entire time they were being observed during the day. And and so what they were noticing was eventually they they saw in some small details this pattern. You know, it might be the husband who's standing looking out the window and a really nice car drives by. He says, wow, look at that car. Or it might be, um, you know, the wife and they're sitting down for a meal that's been prepared. And she's like, man, this pasta. And they noticed over these 130 couples that these small moments would happen frequently throughout the day. And they eventually called them bids. They were, they were moments, a bid was a, like a desire to relationally connect. And they noticed there was two general types of responses that fits in our four categories. The first was what they called a turn-away bid, which was anything negative to neutral. So the first three of our four would be a turn-away bid. And then they noticed a turn-towards bid. And a turn-towards bid is the intentionally constructive in our framework. What was fascinating about the research, though, wasn't that they noticed this pattern. It was that they followed these 130 newlyweds for six years. And at the end of the six years, they noticed this trend. The ones who were divorced after six years, what stood out about them was that they had turn away bids almost 70% of the time. Almost 70% of the time, one couple, one of the individuals tried to connect with the other one. The, the person responded in a way that turned away from them. And the couples that were still together, because they had all this research, they noticed that those couples had turned towards bids almost 90% of the time. And, it, and it's partially because of this research that Gottman became kind of culturally famous for being able to watch a couple interact with each other. And after watching just a brief interaction, could tell you whether or not in six years he could predict they would be divorced. And it's because of this research. Because he noticed that the lifeblood of relationships was communication. The foundation of relationships is communication. And like our iguanas have already shown us, communication is cold-blooded. And we'll either bring a chill and death or we'll bring warmth and life. And what's fascinating for me is in the midst of all these practical handles, um, I'm going to send a video this week in our Three Things email where I'm going to talk about how to deal with confrontation. We'll give you this little, like, um, helpful tip. And um, so that's why one of the things I said, we'd love to have your email because we want to provide resources like that. But um, I'm going to tell a story about uh, when I was in college, I took animal um, psychology and behavioral training. And in my lab, we learned how to train different types of animals. And so one of that, one of the big project for that lab was I had to study um, two bears named Sun, Sundance and Cassidy. Um, and so I would go and I spent a lot of time watching Sundance and Cassidy. Right? And one of the things that I noticed with bears or the lions or all the other animals that I spent time with during that semester in observation of them, is that I've never seen a relational couple in the animal kingdom sit down with a counselor and say, I just don't feel like he's listening to me. I've never seen penguins waddle in and say, how can I help you? And it's like, I just feel like our communication is not strong. Like she gave me an egg and then she disappeared. <laughs> and, I have, and she was gone for months. She never told me where she was. I'm having trust issues. right? Like there is no animal in the animal kingdom that has that level of problem. So why are words so important to us? Why are words the foundation and the lifeblood of the relationships that you and I are in? You see, I think words are special. I think Solomon spends a hundred different Proverbs focused on words. Because words are something, it, words aren't human, they're divine. That when the first action that we see in the entire Bible that God does in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament is we see a God who speaks. And out of speaking, life is created. We see a God who creates with his words. And then we find in those subsequent chapters that he makes us with his words, and then he puts in us that image. And that when you and I speak, when you and I utter our first words, and we utter our last words and everything in between, every time you and I speak, we partner, we reflect that special divine image that we were made with. That words have power beyond us. Words have power beyond our lives because in some ways, words are the most powerful things we handle. Wars have been started. Wars have ended. Relationships have been built and they've been destroyed. Empires have risen and fallen with words. Slavery was abolished with words. It's the most powerful thing you and I do. And when the New Testament writers were trying to sum up and describe what it was like to interact with Jesus, they said he was the living word. It was like if God spoke, but it had skin. He's the living word. Because When we talk about words, when we speak our words, in some way, shape, and form, we create a world with the words we use. That world will either be filled with life or that world will be filled with death. And the power, the person responsible for filling that world is the person who speaks those words. So imagine, maybe, I don't know what your world looks like now, but imagine if this week you went in determined to speak words that bring life, that are intentional, that are constructive, that builds up, that fosters, that draws out the best of those around us, the best in that significant other, the best in your coworkers, the best in your kids. Imagine if that was your intentionality this week. That was the impact your words had. Imagine the world you would build and imagine what would fill it. And I would be willing to wager that if you fill your world with those type of words, you will never, ever, ever have to fear someone paying $5 to name a roach after you. Any and at all. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.